So, you know, we track a couple hundred deals. Just a couple hundred. Just a couple hundred. That's all. But there may only be a handful that are appropriate for your business out of all those. So really understand who you are and what the comps are that are appropriate to match what your business is. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. We are inside of the Halo Academy back with David Zalkowitz, Principal, Integrity Square, the Halo Advisors. Uh, One of the things we wanted to talk about here as it relates to doing deals is to figure out what the valuation of your company is. And there are three ways to traditionally value your company. Discounted cash flow, which is basically the projections, similar to what David had mentioned on the prototype um, build out, you build out your entire budget, then you would discount those cash flows back to come up with a value today based on achieving certain growth in the future. Uh, And then there's using comparable public companies and and comparable transactions that have occurred. So Dave, why don't you talk about mostly the part about deals and comparable transactions is that is pretty much the guiding force, uh, you know, in the halo sector at this point. Right. I mean, there's there's not a lot of publicly traded companies in our sector. Planet Fitness and uh, Town Sports International being two the two most prominent ones. You know, Lennon Green and Partners took uh, lifetime lifetime uh, private. So there's there's really a dearth of publicly traded com- comparables. So we what we typically do is we'll look at what deals have been done in the market. We'll look at transaction comparables, and we have a really kind of a deep rooted ear to the ground on the, in the industry and know a lot of the operators and know a lot of the buyers. And we have a lot of deep knowledge in terms of the transactions in the space. And, you know, those deals are, are typically done uh, on, a, on a multiple of, uh, of EBITDA, sometimes multiple revenue, but predominantly multiple EBITDA. And they're both strategic buyers who already have an existing um, health club chain um, or studio chain who are making acquisitions or there are private equity firms who are either getting want to get into the industry because of its growth or may have an existing portfolio company that uh, has given them a positive experience in the industry and they want to continue to, to build up their portfolio in the health and fitness industry. So as we talk about the broader market on the Halo sector, obviously you've got Food and beverage companies, which, uh, you know, if you catch a rapidly growing brand that has a lot of distribution, uh, those could be double digit, you know, between 10 and up to even 20 times EBITDA based on the growth of an organic food line, a new bar, a new beverage uh, that could be rolled out relatively quickly. Um, When you look at um, brands that are contingent upon locations, which requires a certain amount of capex, like we talked about capital expenditures on a prototype that you have to put down money to make money. Uh, whereas if you have a product, you're not spending as much except for the variable cost of producing that bar or shipping that drink you know, to a, to a convenience store or direct to consumer. So the amount of money putting down for a soul cycle or for a core power yoga or for a Barry's Bootcamp, after you understand the prototype and you see how many locations that management team is able to build uh, on a forecasted basis, that is going to somewhat be indicative of what the multiple is. So you're basically paying for the growth of a business when you're paying a, a multiple of EBITDA. 
Now, this multiple of EBITDA has a lot of different forms and shapes to it. So if you're a Planet Fitness and you have a 100-store development agreement and you've locked up that territory and you're on store number 20, somebody might pay you a lot of money because they have the exclusive right to open up this prototype in this area over a 10-year period. And that's a very valuable asset. So the asset might not only be the actual business model, but actually the market territory, just like a game of risk where I own this area and I have the right to, to build this cash flow engine in, in those territories. Right. We also, there's also situations where you know, a lot of people look at uh, enterprise value to EBITDA, looking at LTM or last 12 month EBITDA, because the typical deal is done based on an LTM uh, EBITDA multiple. But if you're a club chain and you've spent a, num- a lot of dollars already to build out three or four new locations, that amount of EBITDA for those new locations is not in that LTM number. And so we have uh, a calculation that we can do where we, we look at the embedded EBITDA of the business where we factor in the potential EBITDA of those new locations where the stores have been open, but they're not at maturity. Um, and so we would forecast you know, what these locations would look like at, on a mature basis, or at least at a further ramped up basis, and get credit for that from an EBITDA multiple standpoint of view. Yeah, so depending on what the market dictates. So if it's a seller's market where there are a lot of buyers and there aren't many sellers of good assets, um, you can start to create pro forma EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, embedded EBITDA, and some other fancy marketing names for cash flow that you are hopefully going to get in the future if you don't screw this up, uh, is basically what adjusted embedded EBITDA is. Um, and we're going to ask you as a banker to pay for that. Whereas in a more traditional buyer's market, you might just get a return on your CapEx for the location that you put money down, but I'm not going to pay you on the comp because I don't know what the comp looks like. Exactly. It really depends on, on the environment and, and uh, the ability to uh, convince uh, somebody that you know this is a, a realizable uh, amount of cash flow that this business has proven to generate and we maybe already have a huge pre-sale that's been done on the locations and therefore that EBITDA is truly you know tangible. Um, so that's something to think about. But, you know, historically speaking, you know, over the last you know, 13, 14 years, you know, we've had a lot of deals that have been done in the, in the market, over almost 150 deals, about 138 major deals that we've followed in the market. And about 60% of them have been done by financial or private equity firms. And about 40% have been done by strategics. The strategics were the ones who kind of kept the pace going during the Great Recession in 2010, 2011, when the private equity firms kind of vanished from the uh, the buy side, just because of uh, the difficulty in getting debt financing during that time. But over the last uh, five years uh, or more, there, there's been real activity by private equity in the market, you know, in 2016, there were 16 of the 16 deals that we followed, major deals that we followed, 12 of them were were done by private equity. And then 2017, of the 14 deals done year to date, 10 of them have been done by private equity. So private equity is really, really involved here because the debt, the debt markets are open and you're able to get uh, leverage on these, uh, on this industry because we generate a lot of recurring cash flow because of the EFT model. Yeah, so um, you know, all, all these comps are, are in the 
the Halo Academy. So you can look at entities that are similar to your entity to determine, you know, what the multiples are, either you know, based on the number of locations, the size of your locations, the business model that you have, the margins that you have, the geographic regions. There's a lot of different variables here. Right. But I mean, I, we've seen multiples from you know five times up to double digits, uh, depending on the growth of of the business and. And, uh, you know, something, you know, whether you're a unique kind of franchise, like a Barry's Bootcamp, you're going to get a higher multiple because you're, you're in a unique uh, workout. If you're a more traditional uh, health club and you're not experiencing a lot of growth, your valuation can be more like five, five and a half times. Over the last uh, four years or so, you know, we looked at about 70 deals. If you add up all the, all the deals that we've looked at, you're looking at about a two times revenue multiple and about an eight, a little north of eight times EBITDA. Only because there's been a lot more deals in the kind of high growth space that have been done in the, over the last uh, few years. And so, you know, that's it's kind of been a little bit of uh, extra extra growth has been 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 done. Franchisors have, have been involved as well. So we're seeing we're seeing a lot of. Um, payment being made for you know the the real high high end operators. Yeah, and, and just to, to pick up on David's point about uh franchisor versus a franchisee. If you're a franchisor, um typically you have one location that becomes a prototype. Someone's paying you anywhere between four to six percent of their revenue for the uh right to use uh your name and your operating system. Uh once you get up to a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, eight hundred, a thousand locations, you're talking about a significant amount of free cash flow with no capital requirements on behalf of the franchisor, because the franchisee is one paying up front for the initiation fee, two paying you a monthly royalty fee, and three putting down a hundred percent of the capital expenditures to build the stores. So if you want to build a, a brand quickly and you have a really good model that has limited uh, variability when it comes to the labor and the talent and you can really stamp these out and some of the models that would be equivalent to that would potentially be an orange theory where it's heavy on the equipment less emphasis on the instructor uh, massage envy which i would say you know obviously has some risk on the labor side which has come to, to fruition unfortunately in, in bad headline risk but the ability to have 10 rooms in a location train people how to be massage therapists, get them from the schools, have a recurring business model with, um, with membership plans. Um, the franchisor in almost every case, or it should be every case, if not every, the franchisor is always more valuable than the franchisee. And the franchisee is always limited by, one, not being able to operate the business the way they want to because they have to comply with the franchisor. Two, they're limited on the territory that they can build out. So at some point they get maxed out on their territory and then that becomes a, a zero growth opportunity um, and three there are, there are requirements that the franchisor might put on the franchisee to I want you to add in more products I want you to change out your equipment I want you to paint your store I want you to plus the, the franchisor usually has a first right of refusal um, that's a great for, point for, for these deals and it's hard sometimes to get a, a prospective buyer to really pay up more knowing that they don't have the the really the right to buy right away. Yeah, so it's an interesting um, uh, moral or ethical question about capitalism where, you know, I've got an asset, I built it 100% myself, and you are not letting me sell it. 
you know, so it's like almost like a modified property rights act. Um, but the franchisor, their argument will be, well, look, I gave you the brand, I gave you the system and you're only making money because you're following my playbook and it's my playbook and it's, you're basically barred my playbook. So it's mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of these multiples are very important. It is a great way to anchor a buyer and basically have facts dictate the conversation evaluation instead of, Hey, what do you think you'd be willing to pay for this? It's like at a, uh, a rummage sale at, the, or a trade show where you can, uh, or, or street fair, you know, what are you willing to pay for this? Well, whatever you want to sell it to me for. Um, when you have data and you have brands and you can say this company looks like this company and this is what this company is worth. If you have a good advisor and you have a good lawyer, you know, you're probably going to be able to anchor your deal based on that. If you like that comparable. Right. I mean, the, the valuations are all dependent on what does your business look like and which comps are appropriate for your business. I mean, your fast-growing business like Planet in, in the public markets or your, your your business that's reinventing itself like Town Sports International, there's a difference in valuation there in the public markets. Same thing in the in the private transactions. There's, you know, the Barry's Boot Camp and the Cycle Bar of the world that are boutique studio concepts that are really doing well and are getting a high valuation. And then there's smaller growth firms or lower growth firms uh, that are more maybe more traditional health club chains that you know are good businesses but and they generate a lot of good cash flow but they're not experiencing that level of growth and therefore are not getting the same valuation on an EBITDA multiple as as one of the boutique studios so you know we track a couple hundred deals just a couple hundred just a couple hundred that's all but there may only be a handful that are appropriate for your business out of all those so really understand who you are and what the comps are that are appropriate for to match what your business is. Yeah, so the moral of the story here is that uh, not all EBITDA is created equal or valued equal. Um, so figure out what your best comp is and then build your business to the highest EBITDA you can. And then when you want to sell it, make sure you got the right comp set. So it's in the academy. Thanks, David, for that explanation. Sure. We'll catch you on the next podcast. We'll do.